Welcome to episode 19 of The Professor and the Hack with me. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimminton, and with me is the Professor, Peter Van Onselen. Good morning, Peter. G'day, Hugh. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, too. Uh, Scott Morrison is not with us as we go to where He's at the G7 in Biarritz, which used to be where rock stars used to go. Is that right? Absolutely. It was the How start you know of that? the jet sets. It was, <laughs> it was where the uh, Mick Jagger and the rest, when they started the idea of the jet set in the 60s. And Biarritz was, um, you know, not that far a jet away from London and so on, and they used to go to Biarritz. Hmm. Here we are, on the Atlantic coast. Yeah, I wish I'd gone. Lovely spot. Um, but, of course, it's, uh, it's all business uh, for Scott Morrison. He's got a, he's got a seat at the big table. And Only as a visitor, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's funny. There's all this claim that he's the first to go there, but, of course, Kevin Rudd went there when it was the G8. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the G7 because the uh, Russians have been suspended for all their nefarious activities. So, um, but, look, it is important. We've talked about this before. He gets this chance to sit very closely with uh, Donald Trump. We know that he's already had a meeting um, on the sidelines, as they say, where they, they get to talk about things, and he has suggested that uh, while he supports Donald Trump's view that China has been getting away with too much, we're told that Scott Morrison has quietly urged him to try to rein it in a little. Oh, well, that's that then, Hugh. If if Scott Morrison has asked Donald Trump to rein it in, I think we can all just put our pens down and assume he will, can't we? Or we need a summer to talk truth to power. <laughs> that uh, laugh of yours seems just a little cynical. Look, um, but we've seen from Trump this wavering this uh, you know this bipolar activity on whether he's he's going boots in for mm. further trade war and tariffs or if he's deciding that he's done enough or whatever and meanwhile the world holds its breath and the markets go on a roller coaster ride well and it, I, I suspect i mean i i don't know if donald trump thinks this strategically almost to his strategic advantage that he doesn't in some ways because he doesn't come across like just another politician but i wonder whether he's weighing up his feelings about China and trade, which would send him all in on the trade war that he's already embarked on, or whether he's now got one eye to the next presidential election with the concern, perhaps, that a full-on trade war with China could actually hurt some of his core constituents, particularly in those Rust Belt states, with the impact that a trade war would have. But even that, I don't know, is a certainty, because if he went all in on a trade war and if there was really difficult domestic implications for some of those natural Trump constituencies. I could imagine Trump winning that one politically anyway by saying, look, you know, we've got to go all in on this. It's a long-haul fight. You know, China, they're trying to damage me and us in the presidential election, and that could perhaps work in his favour. So I, I don't know what he's thinking here is beyond perhaps just that, hey, guess what? He does want to take China on. The base hasn't abandoned him on this, but as Bob Woodward pointed out in his book, Fear, Mm. um, all presidents have their pet matrices, uh, the way in which they they look at um, essentially the financials, the metrics of government. Uh, And what's clear is that Trump... uh, privileges, I think is the phrase, but puts above all other things the whether there's a, um, a trade surplus or deficit. That is the thing that he's become obsessed with, and he became obsessed with the notion that countries that have uh, a trading uh, surplus with the United States have to be in some way reined in, hmm. uh, which goes against the orthodoxy of open markets and all those other sorts of things. Meanwhile, there's another metric that's coming up on him, and that is the fact that the budget deficit in the United States is about to hit a trillion dollars, well ahead of forecast. Uh, his cutting of taxes is, uh, is, plays into that. But there are some storm clouds economically 
as Trump looks to his uh, re-election. And uh, it, it really does depend on how much, I suppose, the voters in the United States uh, start to get concerned about some of those other numbers. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, or it will be fascinating, to see how this all plays out. It's, it's almost potentially his version of the Liberal Party's natural advantage on the economy in Australia. Even if the economy tanks, the argument pivots to one of, well, don't risk Labor in tough economic times. If the economy goes well, then the Liberal Party says, well, give us full credit for it because we're the better economic managers. Voters, rightly or wrongly, seem to trust them in both spheres. I think Donald Trump, now that he's there as the incumbent, having surprised so many and won the last presidential election, he becomes harder to dislodge, doesn't he? Because he can use his rhetoric in whatever direction he needs to. But as you point out, Hugh, the deficit continues to rise, or national debt, I should say, uh, and they really do have a, a debt fueled problem, even though his tax cuts no doubt helped stimulate the economy. They did it at the expense of continuing rising debt, and it's a bigger issue there, much bigger issue than it is here. I mean, we talk about debt, and sure, you want to rein it in, but our debt as a percentage of GDP is nothing like what debt to GDP is in the United States. It's interesting too because, you know, Scott Morrison is still a, a newbie effectively. He's not long been in office, a year in fact. Mm. Um, but uh, he goes over there and he seems almost like a bit of a grown-up in the room when you look at the Trumps and the, and the Boris Johnsons. Uh, it's not a bad place to be in that he is obviously centre-right, uh, but he is, relatively speaking, more coherent in a lot of his positions than, than these other larger figures. So he's not, he's not actually badly placed as a figure in that company. Isn't it funny when you look at how that sort of construct has changed? You know, I arc back to the period of Howard, George W. Bush and Tony Blair, and yes, Tony Blair was Labor, but he was, you know sort of their new way Labor, where he, these days the Jeremy Corbyn Labor Party would consider him hard right. Labor's never forgiven him. But it's, it's funny, though, isn't it? Because back then you had that sort of triumvirate, and look at it today, you know, Trump, Boris Johnson, and then add Scott Morrison in. I would argue that he's a bit of a Howard light, but he certainly is no step up in terms of where Australia's gone in terms of the, if you like, the flamboyant stakes from replacing a Blair with a Boris Johnson and replacing a George W. Bush, who was so mocked at the time with... Donald Trump, who's who makes George W. Bush like a look like a positively uh, straight down the line conservative politician. You know, the, the be careful what you wish for is almost the situation. And Morrison does look, as you say, like the adult in the room compared to some of the flamboyance that comes from those guys. Yeah, well, we, you know, could the day come, PVO, when we're sitting here going, you know, looking back, Donald Trump was pretty sane and straight and normal oh, compared don't, don't, with don't even uh, say future that. President X. Don't even say that. I mean, <laughs> He's off the charts. I mean, if you'd said that to me, you know, in, a, in another prediction gone wrong, if you'd said that to me years ago when George W. Bush was there, I would have said, no, 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 this is the pinnacle of that point in time, you know, with some of the, the rhetoric that came out of his mouth that he was mocked for. But no, you know, George W. Bush is the more traditional conservative now compared to the way that someone like Donald Trump functions? Well, um, there's an election next year. He could be re-elected. Who knows? Uh, domestically, though, interesting speech, by the way, from uh, Josh Frydenberg. It's been quite well reported uh, on the front pages of the papers, etc., where the angle they've taken really is him urging businesses to stop doing share buybacks uh, and other sorts of devices uh, to, you know, that, that shareholders mm. like and get on with the business of investing in their own future operations. He says productivity is the key to everything. But he 
inside the speech is something really, really interesting. And he says that uh, basically there are very few companies are responsible for all the productivity growth that's happening in the Australian economy. And they are, uh, he's, he's implying, companies that are willing to grasp uh, future innovations, including artificial intelligence, automation, and so on, machine learning, he's big on. And he says this is where the productivity growth really is and that companies need to get on with it and invest in those areas. But he points out that a services sector, which is the majority sector of the Australian economy, has low productivity growth. Now, what I read in that, and I'd be interested in your views on it, hmm. is that it's actually in the services sector is where all the jobs are or so many of the jobs are in Australia, not the capital-intensive ones. And so Josh Frydenberg, in the pursuit of productivity, seems at least to me to be saying that productivity growth in future will not come from those sectors that actually employ workers. It'll come from those sectors that have figured out ways to use the new tools that are coming on stream, artificial intelligence and automation, machine learning and so on, that remove the need for workers. So we get productivity uh, growth but not jobs growth and not wages growth. Well, it's a catch-22, isn't it? Or, or maybe better put a, a, a paradox, if you like, because the government wants wages growth and low unemployment and strong, therefore, jobs growth to go with it. They've got their pledges, you know, their million jobs over the last five years, their 1.25 million jobs over the next five, I think it was, that Scott Morrison promised. And you always wonder how much governments can really do about that sort of thing. But nonetheless, they put a lot into that. Yet at the same time, exactly as you point out, true productivity, not just in his speech, but we know this from studies by the Productivity Commission, no less, true productivity does come from things like automation and AI. And were that to happen in the jobs-heavy retail sector, for example, as it is to some extent happening, it tends to be at the expense of jobs. Automation around checkout services, for example, uh, which removes uh, you know what are often low-paid jobs that, that are essential jobs uh, in the economy for a lot of Australians. So this is a difficult one for the government. If they want higher productivity and they want it in, if you like, what is the traditional way that that is now happening in our modern society through all of this automation and artificial intelligence, then they're going to have a potential problem on the jobs front. And this is what opens up a debate which parts of the world are having. We're certainly not having it, but this concept of the living wage you know, um, and it's not something that is being considered here. It's only been trialled in small areas overseas, but it's been written about by some pretty high-profile high economists, but it's not a debate we're going to have. But it's an issue, isn't it? Uh, and I guess going hand-in-glove with that, you look at the government's intransigence on the issue of Newstart, not wanting to see it go up. Well, again, uh, these are the sort of pressure points that will naturally come into play with higher productivity if it comes at the expense of jobs. So it is a catch-22, for the yeah, I mean, you've got to, I've got to give credit to Josh Frydenberg. I think he has actually mapped out, I'd recommend anyone have a look at the speech, uh, he's mapped out the actual issues, the realities of, of how things As opposed go. to spin, you mean? Or? Yeah, 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 that's right. So there's detail in there, and it's uh, it's not that hard to read. It's fairly clear. And, um, you know, there, there is an opportunity in there, if people want to have a look at it, to really see uh, what's plainly a well-informed judgment as to where things go. And just last week I was in Brisbane, and I met a bloke called Lex Greensill, who is a really fascinating in character. He's the son of a Bundaberg cane farmer, which right. is outside Bundaberg. And he saw how his parents' cane farm, they had difficulty getting finance and all the rest of it. Now, this bloke is brilliant. There's no doubt about it. So he set up, he developed his own artificial intelligence system 
that essentially uh, improves access to finance for farmers and other smallholders all the way around the world. Lex Greensill is now a billionaire. His right. company is a multi-billion dollar company. He went and advised um, David Cameron when David Cameron was the uh, British Prime mm. Minister and the GFC was biting. Uh, Cameron called him in to because he was desperate when the GFC was biting on how they could keep liquidity, money, going into small and medium businesses. They could see how gigantic businesses could have personal relationships with banks when everything got locked up, essentially, in the, in the GFC. But how do you keep the real engine room of an economy going, small and medium businesses going? He called in this guy, Lex Greensill, uh, to advise him. Uh, and Greensill did advise David Cameron. When David Cameron left office, David Cameron went and worked for right? Lex Greensill. And uh, he now owns a bank in Germany, all these sorts of things. These billions of dollars going through. This comes down to my point after the Josh Frydenberg speech, is that Greensill, for all the capital that he's got and the global reach of what he's doing, employs 450 people. Hmm. There are no jobs in this It's the new world. economy, isn't it's it? It's the new economy. It's the AI that is driving this whole financial system. And... Anyone looking at it, there are very few people among us who are as brilliant as this guy, but uh, if you're looking at it and trying to see where is the, the big opportunities for great areas, it's probably not in something that employs an enormous number of people. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one. I, I tend to be a pessimist along the lines of, from a jobs perspective, along the lines of this new economy and, and what we're seeing happening, particularly because of AI. The counter view to that, though, which is put by some people I've had you know arguments with at different points, polite arguments, is that we've been through a version of this before, you know, with uh, the the automation line, the automobile, um, you know, the whole Ford approach to things. Uh, and they say that, you know, other jobs come up uh, as that shifts. Now, I'm not entirely sold on that. History says that is how it's worked. But we are changing so rapidly. Yes. And I, I wonder how much history is a guide to where we go next because of just how much more rapid that change is, you know, and yes, the Industrial Revolution was rapid, but it's just an escalating curve now in terms of how quickly things are changing. And jobs do look a little bit like uh, one of the things that will fall by the wayside. Yeah, and, and the argument goes is that the jobs in the future, either the super bright people are actually making the AI work and the automation and all those kinds of things. There's always going to be jobs for them. Or those uh, areas where no machine can do the job, like an aged care worker mm. or a hairdresser or a cleaner. So uh, these are the kinds of things. But And we are an ageing society, so there'll be more requ requirements in some of those spheres, but I just wonder that it's not one-for-one one replacement. And also, where's the big middle? That's the where exactly. are all those professional jobs going? We're going to take a, a, a brief break. Stay with us because uh, we have much to talk about here on The Professor and the Hack. G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. Welcome back to The Professor and the Hack. Now, PVO, you've been paying some attention to Christina Keneally. What's she up to? Yeah, it's interesting. She's trying to really pivot the debate around refugees and asylum seekers. Now, this is, as everyone knows who's listening, been, if you like, in a political sense, a real uh, millstone around the neck of the Labor Party. You know, ever since going right back to 2001 with John Howard and the MV Tampa uh, through to the boats uh, increasingly arriving again during the Rudd and Gillard years 
and then of course Tony Abbott's mantra in 2013, stopping the boats and then actually being successful in doing so, whatever you think of the approach, the tactics, etc., uh, they did stop the boats. Uh, and Labor then trying to, in the aftermath of that, through the shortened years, trying to, if you like, make little difference between the two sides on asylum seekers, other than, of course, right at the end, the Medivac bill. You wonder what impact that did or didn't have at the election. But generally speaking, very little difference between the sides and Labor would really try to avoid talking about it. I mean, if you remember, it was Shane Newman who had carriage of immigration and and border protection issues in the lead-up to the last election, and he was, you know, a ghost in many respects in terms of how little media he did versus someone like Peter Dutton, who was so prominent. What we're seeing now... Uh, with Christina Keneally and presumably with the support of the new leadership team led by Anthony Albanese, is a real shift. They're trying to not talk about boats, but they're trying to pivot to the issue of plane arrivals and the surge in people seeking asylum on plane arrivals. So you stop the boats, but they're still coming. Exactly. So Christina Keneally did an interview with Sky News on the weekend, just passed, and she told David Spears that, yeah, sure, we have to give credit to the government. They did manage to stop the boats. However, during the time at which the boats have stopped, we've had a massive surge in plane arrivals. And she made the point that it's been something like 250 or 260,000 people coming by plane seeking asylum. And and here's the key statistic. 90% of them are assessed to not be genuine refugees. Now, it's the follow-on from that that interests me. I think People are more concerned uh, about boat arrivals because they come without papers and and so on. You come by plane and seek status, you've still got your passport by definition to get into the country. And then there is a sort of a theory that they're tracked uh, as per a bridging visa and all the rest of it. But Christina Keneally is trying to create a sense that the government has taken its eye off the ball on plane arrivals at the same time as stopping the boats. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And and it's a big surge. I think it used to be around 80,000. It's now gone up to 250. It's a large number of people. That's over a a period of a few years. But the thing about it is, is that, for me, so many of them are assessed to not be refugees. What happens next? Do they get deported or do we lose them into the Australian ether uh, where they, you know, where where they they take a run, if you like? Does she have an answer to that? I haven't got to that yet. We're going to get to that. Uh, They've got a forum about this this morning. But what I think is also interesting is not just the issue itself. I, I think the debate over whether this will work politically as a discussion point for Labor is interesting. I think it's a worthy policy discussion to have because it is such a large number. And in a policy sense, Labor and Christina Keneally are also talking about how often these people can end up in low-paid jobs and take jobs away. We've just been talking about jobs as an issue uh, during their sort of bridging visa period. Or... So during the bridging visa period, they are entitled to work? Well, there are some limited entitlements. However, there are also the claims that there's cash-in-hand work that they're taking in the black economy as well. So this is a really worthy policy debate to have. I just wonder, though, politically whether it works for Labor because I don't know that it does. So I think it's, you know, power to them for raising it as a policy debate that, frankly, we should have, as well as something that needs to be addressed and discussed by the current government. But whenever she gets questioned on what to do about it, she says, well, we're not the government. You've got to ask Peter Dutton. This is this tactic that we're seeing from Team Albo in the early period in opposition. It's a fair point. I just don't know how it works politically, and I don't know how talking about asylum seekers with plane arrivals 
necessarily works politically either. Well, it could be argued good on her for raising an issue I if agree. it is an issue of public policy. And, of course, her, she's got the, uh, the task of trying to uh, neutralise the impact of Peter Dutton, uh, who has been so effective at uh, prosecuting, well, both maintaining the stopping of the boats... Um, he then, this is a different way to do it, though, isn't it? Hugh? Yes, it is. I mean, he carries the opprobrium then of, of all cruelty to people on Manus or mm. Nauru, etc., is visited at his door, and he seems to have managed to carry that balance um, to the sufficient satisfaction of the voting people. Uh, so he's, he's a tough nut to crack for Labour. And uh, so they've put this, um, uh, well, you know, reported star... There, there's some doubts about what her value actually is. Some people say she doesn't have great value with the with the electorate. I'd be interested to know what your view of it. But she's certainly articulate and she certainly can uh, make an argument. So, so really, this is going to be, as it has been in the past, potentially a continuing uh, point of high-profile conflict between mm. the two major parties. Yeah, I think it will be high-profile. And, and Labor, having spent so many years not wanting to discuss it and hoping to just by and large, say, we've got a similar policy here, look elsewhere and decide your vote on that. It looks like they're muscling up here and Christina Keneally, presumably with the approval of Anthony Albanese, is saying, no, actually, look over here mm. because there's more than boats to discuss and we've got concerns about how the government's going. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, because it's not only so much you can blame the government for that, if uh, any government for that, if people get on a plane with a tourism visa or a family visa, whatever it is, business visa, and they, and they turn up here and then they... Um, make a claim for asylum, they're entitled to do that, of course. Um, you, and you don't know when someone gets on a plane on a tourism visa, we're going to shut down tourists on the assumption that a proportion of them, you can't, you know, you know might then claim visa, you know, uh, um, asylum. Uh, how then, do you actually stop people coming oh, in by sure. plane? And that's presumably one of the reasons she doesn't want to answer that question when it gets put, what would you do? But by the same token, there is a massive surge in yeah. these asylum claims by plane. What's driving that? Is it because they've shut down people's smuggler routes on boats? I'm not sure about that. Uh, is it something broader? I, I just don't know. Can they find a way to tighten the rules uh, around uh, people that arrive with adequate paperwork by and, plane? And where are they coming from too? Because that would become important. Are they coming, if they're claiming asylum, uh, rightly or wrongly? Is it because they're coming from uh, the Middle East? Are they coming I think from it's parts a broad, of Africa? I think it's a broad cross-section, including here in, in Asia more broadly. But it, look, it, it is an interesting one. Obviously, some factor, whether it's push or pull, is spiking the numbers. Whether it's a public policy shift, I don't know. You know, has Has something loosened that has led to the change over recent years? Or is it something that's a, a push factor... From from abroad, uh, we'll you know we'll find out. I guess there's 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 clearly an indication here that Labor is going to continue to look into this. Mm, it's interesting. The um, Spectator Index has uh, um, just published a report on the uh, a survey. A, they do a lot of international surveys or report international surveys, and the question was um, uh, that immigrants strengthen uh, the economy. This was put to people in a whole range of different countries. Do immigrants strengthen your economy? Canada, 68% said yes, quite pro-immigration. Hungary, 5% uh, 
believe that immigrants strengthen the economy. Only 5%, wow. Yeah. And Hungary, of course, is that uh, hmm. essentially the, the route into Europe is it's coming out of the Middle East and they have a right-wing um, government in place uh, at the moment. Greece, of course, another route out of the Middle East into Europe. Only 10% believe that immigrants strengthen their economy. Australia, though, second only to Canada. Uh, we have a view in Australia, on the basis of this survey at least, that uh, two-thirds of us think that immigrants are good for the economy. And we've always been a very high migration country. Uh, and that was one of the arguments that Howard Defenders during his years when he was so hard on stopping the boats would use the argument that he was doing that to provide the confidence in the Australian people in the rest of the immigration system, which of course saw there's been records since then, but saw record levels of immigration during the Howard years, notwithstanding his tough border protection policies. The argument coming from Howard supporters and conservatives was that you couldn't have one without the other because if people lost confidence in the borders, then they would start to question uh, the extent of, of immigration. I think we're now getting a bit of a questioning on that anyway, but those statistics are heartening to that possibility because the truth is that immigration of almost any form, but particularly skilled migration that's targeted, has a huge benefit for the economy, not just plugging gaps in the workforce and in the skill set of the nation, but in driving uh, economic growth. Without the levels of immigration that we have long had, we wouldn't have had that sustained period of economic growth. That's right. And, and uh, Josh Frydenberg in his speech actually credits uh, population uh, to, which is another way of saying immigration uh, to a large extent in Australia as being a, a key driver of, of productivity and activity uh, in our economy. And I remember Scott Morrison when he was treasurer pushing back, I think it was against Peter Dutton and others about this sort of, and Tony Abbott, about this idea of, oh, we need to cut immigration. He was profoundly against that as Treasurer because, of course, as Treasurer, he knew full well how important the levels of immigration were to his various budgetary goals. Mm. That's where a lot of the growth comes from. So um, another question, and we might kind of leave it on this, is do we spy too much on ourselves, are we in a surveillance nation? There is a uh, four corners coming out from the ABC uh, on this, but it goes into it's obviously it, it, spinning off the back of it is these these raids or search warrants being executed against the ABC against uh, the News Corp journalist Annika Smithhurst, the planned and intended raid against News Corp headquarters, which they called off. Mm. Uh, we now know after the the uproar over the ABC. Um, but it's also bound up in the Witness K case, which is going through the courts, which is where it's been revealed, well, in fact, we've known for some time, that uh, because it went to the international courts in The Hague, that Australia used an ASIS spy system to bug the East Timorese in order to gain an advantage in the um, negotiations over where our sea border, our maritime border, would be between East Timor and Australia because that's where the oil and gas is and Australia wanted more of that money. It wanted to, to diddle them out of, uh, of that border negotiation. Um, uh, Jose Ramos Horta told me at the weekend this is the saddest episode in Australia's history, hmm. that Australians had gone and saved East Timor, given it a chance to be an independent nation. Were well, you there reporting on it, weren't you? Oh, yeah, I did, I did. I did. I wasn't aware of the spying and all the rest of it. Sure. We certainly covered the the birth pangs of East Timor. But even now, he's, you know, it, it is that thing. Australia saved the East Timorese people and then sought to steal from them. Hmm. And that's... It's hard to take the high moral spy, ground on that, isn't it? It's very hard, very hard. And that goes back to the um, 
uh, to the Downer Howard days in that. But, lest we forget, Gareth Evans had also had his famous chinking of the champagne glasses with the Indonesian foreign minister back in the day as they agreed that Australia would recognise Indonesian control over East Timor in exchange for the Australians getting the first go at that oil and gas. So... Um, is there something not quite right about the degree to which our spy agencies and our intelligence agencies are operating their perception of the public interest and the national interest? Does it fit with how Australians might perceive their national and public interest? Yeah, these are really interesting philosophical debates in many respects because on the one hand, is there, you know, is there a room for a whatever-it-takes attitude when it comes to pressing the national interest, i.e. the bugging of the East Timorese to try to get a national interest advantage? I would argue no. I would argue that if you try to defend the liberal democracy that we are, uh, you then have to purport uh, and, in reality, also replicate that in your international engagements and dealings, not just because of the if you like, power disadvantage between East Timor and Australia and the proximity, the neighbour and, and Australia's role in helping East Timor to be liberated um, from the yoke of Indonesia, but also just because we're a liberal democracy, I think we should practise what we preach in that sense. The other half of the debate, as an extension, if I can, from that, is this whole notion of, well, what about when you're taking on a totalitarian or authoritarian power? Now, that's not East Timor, but vis-a-vis -vis China, for example, with what we may or may not engage in. Is it okay to become what you are fighting against to win the fight? Now, that's a deeply philosophical debate, which is a fascinating one too. Again, though, I would lean towards the no on that because otherwise you risk becoming what you are loathing and trying to fight against and there's a slow erosion of, of rights and power. And this brings us back to the domestic sphere. I'm constantly it's changed a little bit in the last months really or maybe years but over the last decade or two i've been amazed actually at how much in the digital age and the electronic age that we're in how much australians have been prepared to give away in terms of liberties and freedoms you know whether it's in the name of more terrorist protection or whatever else it might be i mean the big brother state the sort of orwellian 1984 concept we're so much more advanced towards that than much of what Orwell could ever conceive in the limited frame of what he knew when he was alive with where technology would take us. We're so much further along it. But people are just so relaxed about it, including their own disseminating of information on social media of various forms, much less than what government can and can't do. And I, I, look, I'm a bit of a libertarian on this side of things uh, and I don't like uh, the... I would rather risk, if I could put it this way more security threats for the preservation of personal and individual liberty, myself. Mm. Yes, it's funny. We did give away a lot to Facebook. People have done it willingly, but we started to see the first signs of, of there being... Uh, people are starting to question mm. those instincts, and I think that freedom that we've given to governments to surveil us is also... I just have a feeling it's starting to reach its limits. Well, hopefully. I mean, think of it this way, OK? I mean, you know, you're not allowed to do Nazi Germany comparisons. I'm certainly not comparing current governments to that. But just imagine if in somewhere like Nazi Germany or Italy under Mussolini, you name it, right, in one of these countries, just imagine if people had the amount of information about themselves back then out and in the ether 
because of the social media that we have now had that existed then. I mean, the extent of the genocide would have would make what occurred look like a microcosm of what could have happened, you know? And, and people just don't think that way because we take our liberal democracy for granted. We assume it won't happen again, that history won't repeat itself, or that we in this country are immune from that. And we look, we probably are. We almost certainly are. But I tell you what, you know, the, the giving up of that kind of information so freely when one's enemies, if you like, were they to get into to power somehow, it, it actually frightens me when I read about it all without being some sort of conspiracy theorist suggesting that it's about to happen. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance, sometimes even against your own government, Peter Van Onselen. Yep. So good to talk to you. Likewise. That's the Professor and the Hack. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.